Our current series, The Table of Undeserving Friends, uh, it's been a challenging one, if I'm honest. Uh, the sheer amount of diversity gathered at God's table, uh, it can be a little overwhelming. It's beautiful, but it's challenged. Uh, nothing is more challenging, perhaps, than the fact that we will meet some of our enemies at God's table. Uh, we touched on this only briefly last week with Naaman. He was a commander in the Syrian army. He was a part of the nation that oppressed Israel. He was in every way the personification of all that was wrong in the world to Israel. And yet God extended his welcoming grace to Naaman and changed him and gave him a seat at the table in God's kingdom. Uh, this week we're turning uh, to one of the more famous enemies at God's table, Saul. We know him better as Paul, or St. Paul, and we're going to look at his conversion story in Acts chapter 9. Uh, but our focus is actually going to be mostly on a man named Ananias. Uh, we're going to pull up a seat beside him and listen to what he learned about God's welcoming grace as he had to welcome uh, Saul turned Paul into his life. And so what will Ananias tell us? Loving our enemies isn't just a nice idea. It's a practice. We may even receive some of our enemies as sisters and brothers. Uh, but this is only possible if we accept that we too have been enemies. That's the big idea this morning. So open your Bibles up with me to Acts chapter 9, starting in verses 1 and 2. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, which is what the early Christians were called, men or women, uh, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We're first introduced to Saul in chapter 7 and 8 of Acts, and it's at uh, the, the stoning of Stephen, when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was killed uh, by an angry mob, and, and Saul was there. He was present, but he wasn't just a witness, he was an active participant. He stood approvingly, and, and then people put their coats down at his feet at the end. From that moment on, uh, Saul led a vicious campaign against the church. Uh, chapter 8.3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, uh, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now here in chapter 9, Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the he is a man ravaging the church, breathing threats and murder. Uh, the language Luke uses for, to portray Saul is uh, that of a wild and ferocious beast. The word for ravaging actually uh, refers to the ravaging of a body by a wild boar. Uh, don't think of the gassy, fun-living, you know, Akuna Matata singing Pumbaa. Uh, think of the more untamable, chaotic animal that you would find in the wild. Uh, uh, more like the wild boars who tear up old Yeller, you know, as he, he protects the boy. Uh, those are the sort of boars that we need to think of when we think of how Luke is describing uh, Paul here. You see, Paul, this is our snapshot, sorry, Saul at this moment in his life. He was more wild animal than human being. That's what Luke wants to get across. As, as he attacks, attempts to destroy the church, he is more of a wild animal than a human being. His heart has been given over to hatred. His mind has been given over to prejudice. And later in Acts, Paul even himself describes this time in his life as having been obsessed or even consumed by a wild fury, a raging fury. And all of this fury was focused towards the destruction of the early church. And because of this, 
The early church had friends and family, people they knew by name who had been impacted by Saul's oppression. People who had been taken off to jail and even murdered. He was a name to be feared. He was a name that was known. He was a violent oppressor. And now Saul is extending his campaign. He's going outside of Jerusalem and into the outer cities. He will not let Christians run away. And so when we have this snapshot of Paul in our mind, what comes next is staggering. We'll pick up the text back in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Uh, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. If you had told you know, Saul, look, on your way to Damascus, you're going to have a conversion experience, and you're going to join the very people you've been trying to destroy. He would have ridiculed you. He would have said, no way, never. Like, I will never join this heretical little, you know, sect of Judaism. They are wrong. I am going to destroy it. Never. And yet this is the case over and over again throughout history. It's the people you least expect, the people who say, never in a million years would I believe in Jesus, that often end up coming around and, and, and being saved by Jesus. And what explains these sort of radical transformations, people who go from violent oppressor to you know, a conversion experience with Christ? It's God's welcoming grace. Jesus extends grace even to an enemy, to someone who wasn't even searching for him but only searching to destroy his followers. Jesus himself appears to Saul, and he asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, well, who are you, Lord? And then he hears something that must have made his stomach turn. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Saul encounters the risen and ascended Lord. And he's changed. How could you not be changed? He's spiritually and emotionally and physically changed. And it's a very dramatic conversion. Saul had expected, you know, to enter into Damascus, you know, full of righteousness and self-confidence as he opposes the movement of Jesus. But he's changed. He ends up blind. And he's led into the city, humbled and captive by the Christ that he had so violently opposed. And Luke writes that when he opened his eyes, he saw nothing. Blackness. Blindness in the scriptures, it often represents one's spiritual state. And so Saul's physical condition now matches his previous spiritual condition. He's been blind to the truth about Jesus. He's been blind to the reality of the resurrection. And while a lot of things could be said about Paul's conversion, I want to move on to Ananias in, in verses 10 through 10, or 10, you know, 10 through 10, one verse, but also through 14, uh, starting in verse 10. Now, Okay, now, uh, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. The Lord comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, head on down the street. Go to Straight Street. That'd be like us saying, go to Granville Street. It's the main street in the city. And you're going to find Saul. He's waiting for you. I've, I've spoken to him. I've told him your name. He's expecting you to come. It's interesting what Jesus doesn't say right out the gate. He says nothing of Saul encountering grace or encountering God's welcome. He says nothing of Saul being changed. Uh, he doesn't say Saul won't hurt you. He doesn't say Saul has stopped persecuting the church. He just says go to Saul and lay your hands on him and pray for him so that he can regain his sight. He needs you. You know, if I was Ananias, you know, my first just gut response to you told him my name, Lord? Like, why don't you just give him my address while you're at it? Like, I might as well march myself on down to jail. Like, what are you thinking, Jesus? Remember, Ananias, he had no idea about everything that's happened to him. And all he knows is that somehow he's lost his sight. And he's asked now to go help his enemy. You know, at a great risk to his own well-being. And so Ananias expresses this concern to Jesus. Like, really? Like, Saul? He's evil. Like, you know the evil he's done to our people. Like, why would you send me to help him of all people? And this is a move that just doesn't make sense to Ananias. It's risky. It'll put his own well-being in jeopardy. And of course, Ananias, he's familiar with the teachings of Christ. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. But it's one thing to hear this idea. It's another thing to put it into practice. It's one thing to say, sure, I'll love my enemies. I'll pray for them. It's another thing to actually have to go into their presence and lay your hands on them and pray for them. When I first became a Christian, uh, I was 22, and, and as I've told you guys the stories of being on the road, and so I decided to go and do uh, undergraduate studies and give up you know, the, the successful life of a musician, which wasn't successful at all. And I had no Christian friends. Right? I knew nothing about the Bible. I bought a Bible. I didn't even know translations existed. It was King James, and I was struggling as hard as I could to read it, and I'd keep it in my backpack. And, and this girl one day at school, her name was Jen, she saw this Bible in my backpack. She says, do you read that? I said, depends. How are you going to respond if I say yes? And she said, oh, that's great. I'm a Christian. I, she was literally the first Christian I ever met in Vancouver. And I said, awesome. Like, I'm a Christian too. And she's like, do you go to church? I'm like, no, not really. And she's like, well, why don't we start a Bible study at lunch and we can start reading through the Bible together? I said, that would be fantastic. And so she got this little crew together. And I think she did it just for me because I was so far gone. Uh, it wasn't even funny. And um, these were my only Christian friends in the whole world. You know, and and every Tuesday at lunch, we'd get together and we'd just do this little Bible study. And they had no idea, like, how much life this breathed into me. And, 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 and like, how much I depended on it, how much it meant to me. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever read the scriptures with people and ever prayed with people, this little group. And, and during my studies in my undergrad, I had uh, some serious problems with a professor. And he constantly was harassing me. He would make fun of me in front of the class. Uh, he would walk behind me and kick my chair. Like, it got so bad, I had to get the academic dean involved. And, uh, and, and, and it was a mess. It was really strange to be bullied by, you know, like an, as an adult male by like an older adult male like in an you know, undergraduate study situation. It was very strange. And so at this little Bible study, I just realized there was a ton of setup, but bear with me. Uh, at this little Bible study, I finally said, you know what? I'm going to make a prayer request. I never put a prayer request for it. I said, look, 
this has been happening. I don't really know what to do about it. I don't know really how to respond. I don't even know how you should pray other than maybe the Lord could smite this fellow. But um, <laughs> could you pray for me? And so Jen, she prayed for me. And then she stopped and she said, now, Alistair, why don't you pray for Mr. So-and-so? And I remember thinking like, girl, like you, you're crazy. Like, <laughs> what do you mean pray for him? But I didn't think I could say that. And I was put on the spot. And so I figured I should pray. And so this is essentially what I said. Lord, I uh, pray for Mr. So-and-so. So, uh, yeah. Amen. <laughs> Eloquent stuff. And, but this experience, right, it's burned its way into my memory. It was, you know, it was, I remember reading in that time, like we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, like, love your enemies and pray for them and thinking like, yeah, that is awesome. Um, but when that theory had to be put into practice, you know, just the mere art of even praying for an enemy, it made my stomach turn. You know, because at the end of the day, for any person loving our enemies, it is nonsensical. Now, that's not the default gut human response, you know. Love the person who bullies you. Love the person who abused you. Love the person who robbed you. Love the person who tore your family apart. Love the person whose mistake cost you your ongoing health. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not just saying, like, have nice warm feelings towards your enemies. You know, that alone would be hard enough. But in the scriptures, love is always in action. Jesus is essentially saying, seek the good of your enemies. Isn't that what he's asking of Ananias here? Saul's blind. Seek his good. Go be my conduit of healing. It's hard enough, if we're honest, but just to like the people we don't really like. Like if Jesus had commanded us, like, like those who irritate you, that would be difficult enough for us, let alone to love those who irritate us. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Don't settle for hating your enemies. Don't settle for disliking your enemies. Don't even settle for liking your enemies. Love your enemies. And let's face it, for most of us, our enemies are nothing compared to what Ananias was facing. Nothing at all. When I was being bullied by a teacher, I, my life wasn't in danger. I wasn't at risk of being put into jail. What Jesus was asking of Ananias is huge. For loving our enemies, it makes no sense to our natural sensibilities. It, it, it just seems reckless. What if Ananias goes and he only re-empowers Saul to inflict more pain upon the church? What if in loving the people who've hurt us, we only enable them to hurt us more? Is this even wise? Is this even what Jesus is asking of us? It's no wonder that Ananias is filled with so much hesitation about going to Saul. We're filled with just as much hesitation. And Jesus knows this, and this is why he fills the picture in a little more for Ananias in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus is so clear with Ananias. Saul has been changed. He is Christ's chosen instrument. He will proclaim the name of Jesus. Rather than inflict suffering upon the church, he's now going to suffer for the church. So, when the idea of loving our enemies translates into practical actions, it's not a calling to utter recklessness. Remember, loving our enemies is seeking their good and flourishing. If someone is still in a pattern of destruction and harm, seeking their good is never empowering that pattern. 
Indeed, seeking someone's good in that scenario could actually be calling out these destructive patterns of hurt and harm. In the case of Ananias, Saul has been changed. He's been called by Jesus into Christ's mission. Loving Saul at this point looks very different than loving Saul if he was still persecuting the church. If Saul was still persecuting the church, it's likely that all Ananias could do is pray. And sometimes that's all we can do for our enemies, is pray for them. But we shouldn't be surprised if God answers those prayers. And when the opportunity arises, when there's a realistic chance of forgiveness or reconciliation or growth, Jesus may call us to take more practical actions. Jesus may call us to go. Jesus may send us to engage and interact with our enemies, to engage with the people who have hurt us or caused us harm, because he's already laid the ground for something profound. After all, Ananias isn't going to empower Saul to continue persecuting the church. He's actually going to empower Saul to start suffering for the church. He's sending Ananias to restore Saul's sight, but this time what Saul will see will be totally different. He will now see his place within the world. He'll now see the world in light of Christ being its Lord. And what's beautiful about this to me is Ananias is willing to go. He's not willing to let the command, love your enemies, just be a nice idea. And if we really think about it, it's not a nice idea. It can't just be a nice idea. It's an upside-down idea. It doesn't make sense. But that's much of the Christian life. Loving your enemies is just as bizarre as if you want to find your life, lose it. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Yet this is the life Christ calls us to live out. He doesn't just say, check off the right boxes, know that I've said this. He says, walk with me in this life. And Ananias, he's willing to do it. What Jesus is calling him to do is risky It might not even make sense, but if Christ is in it, Ananias is willing to follow. He might be scared, he might wrestle with it, but if Christ is there, he'll be there too. So we read in verses 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. Apparently he only had pink eye like I did last week. Uh, And he regained his sight. Gross joke, I'm sorry. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. What are the first words out of Ananias' lips? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Imagine what that would have sounded like to Paul. Imagine what that would have felt like to him. His reality has been darkness for three days. He's been praying. He's probably been reflecting on his actions and how he's been persecuting the church, how he's been persecuting Christ. He's probably racked with guilt, repenting, asking Jesus for forgiveness. The people who've known him, the people who are hosting him, they probably have no idea what on earth has happened to Saul. You know, has he not only lost his sight, but also lost his mind? And then Ananias arrives and he puts his hand on on Saul's shoulder, and he says, Brother Saul. Saul isn't met with hostility. He isn't met with vengeance. What he has done hasn't been heaped back on him. He's welcomed as a brother. And it's remarkable because Ananias can probably name people by name, friends and family who have been put into jail or killed because of Saul. He knows people who have lost everything because of Saul, and yet he says, Brother Brother Saul. 
You're not an enemy. You're my brother. And then he immediately treats him like a brother. He prays for him. And Saul's miraculously healed. He baptizes Saul. He, he brings him into the family of God. He breaks bread with him. And then he starts to spend time with him, discipling him, helping, helping him grow in his faith and understanding of the Lord. But in order to do this, Ananias had to be willing to forgive. To extend forgiveness on behalf of the early church. To reconcile. To receive Saul as one of their own. As a new man. As Paul. And this is only possible though. Because Paul was also receptive to what God was doing in his life. And receptive to what God was doing in and through Ananias' life. And so the oppressor joins the oppressed. The enemy becomes a brother. And Paul is a part of the family of Christ. And, and this welcome that Ananias extends. It's just a glimpse of how Christ himself has welcomed Saul into the family of God. And it's only possible through a comprehensive and powerful forgiveness, which then empowers people to love their enemies and actually put it into action. Another very powerful picture of love your enemies in action is found in Rwanda. After the 1994 genocide that left uh, nearly a, a million uh, Tutsis and moderate Hutus murdered, the country and the world was Devastated, shocked. How could this happen? And almost a decade later, starting in 2003, the Rwandan government, uh, with countless religious communities and, and uh, other organizations, began trying to put the country back together. The, the people of 9 million citizens, where nearly one in eight people were murdered. And Jeremy Coward, he's a very talented photographer, he went and he captured some photos of these stories with some brief descriptions. Uh, this is a picture uh, of Gaspard. And, and, and on, the light, on, the, on the left is a man named Innocent, the name he was given after, after being forgiven by Gaspard, because Innocent is the man who killed Gaspard's older brother in 1994. And Gaspard and Innocent reconciled while attending a workshop hosted by As We Forgive Rwanda Initiative. And today, they actually work together for an agricultural association. And this photo is taken, sorry, go back. And this photo is taken at the exact spot where his brother was murdered. The next photo, this is a picture of Anasta and, and Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude is on the left. And Anasta survived the genocide by uh, climbing up a banana tree while an entire uh, mob chased his entire family into the lake and drowned. And Jean-Claude is the son of the leader of that mob. And although uh, the father fled the country in fear, Jean-Claude begged begged Anasta for forgiveness during the Gakaka trial. And Anasta, out of his Christian faith, forgave them all. And, and this picture is taken in the lake where his family was drowned. And the stories, they go on and on. Of victims forgiving their abusers, of abusers repenting and begging for forgiveness and reconciliation, of the oppressed forgiving their oppressors and the than the humbled oppressor gratefully receiving forgiveness. But not only forgiving, reconciling, and building lives together. But it was only possible because it was a two-way street. A willingness to extend forgiveness was met with a willingness to ask and recognize the need to be forgiven. Without it going both ways, reconciliation isn't possible. And this is beautiful. These stories are beautiful, but they're challenging. Because on the one hand, 
We have a difficult enough time forgiving the simpler stuff. The friend who betrayed us, the person who insulted us, the offhand comment, the person who cuts us off on the sidewalk because they're texting while walking, you know, the person who seems like they can never follow through on the things they'll do for you, the boss uh, who never appreciates you or even the church that has hurt you. And then we hear stories like this and And compared to what took place between Ananias and Paul and what's taking place in Rwanda, our inability to forgive, like even the most minor offenses or even major offenses, like it seems so petty compared to the sort of forgiveness and reconciliation that's taking place in the globe. Nevertheless, it's hard. We all know this. It is hard to forgive even the minor stuff, even the major stuff in our lives. Because we want to hold on to the offenses. We want to tally them up. We want to justify not forgiving Why? Because forgiveness is costly. It means absorbing the cost of the hurt or the betrayal or the shame. And until we can comprehensively forgive in our lives, we'll never stand a shot at loving our enemies. If we can't muster up forgiveness in our day-to-day lives and the offenses that occur just there, loving our enemies is just a pipe dream. On the other hand, I realize that some of you here might be thinking, This is why Christianity is dangerous. You welcome evil, oppressive people into your midst. It's cheap. You act as if what they've done hasn't mattered. They should face the consequences. They should pay for what they're doing. Loving your enemies, that's wrong. I get that on some level. You know, the people who've done atrocious things shouldn't get off scot-free. The most violent dictators and oppressors of history shouldn't get a free pass just because they prayed the prayer. You know, at least that's what our hearts tell us. And in the same way, the people who've hurt us the most, even the people may, that maybe have abused us in some way, like should they just escape the consequences too? This just brings us back to the problem of a command like love your enemies. It feels reckless. It feels risky. When it's put into action, it doesn't seem fair or just or appropriate. And how on earth are we supposed to live out a command like this in the real world? In the real world where simple things or petty things are hard enough to forgive, in the real world where forgiving enemies seems antithetical to the common good of society. The true truth is this. The problem isn't so much with the command, but with ourselves. The problem isn't so much with the command, but with ourselves. We have categories of bad. The people that bother us or who we don't like, they're bad. People who offend us or hurt us, they're bad. Our enemies, they're really bad. But ourselves, we're not that bad. We may have problems, but we're not like them. The problem, then, is that we don't actually evaluate ourselves honestly. We compare ourselves to the worst people we can fathom or the people we don't like, and we think, you know, I'm not so bad at all, and I would never do what that person is doing. I would never do that. Assuming that we know how we would act in every single situation. Assuming that we know how we would act if all of our circumstances were changed. And this just shows us that we do not take sin very seriously. We do not take sin very seriously. Especially the sin that we can so easily rationalize in our own lives. But Paul, perhaps better than most of us, understood the problem of sin. Which is why he wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we're now justified by his blood. What he means is now that we're set right by Christ dying on the cross. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies. If while we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his death. What the human heart stubbornly resists is, is admitting that any and all sin makes us enemies of God. Not just Saul, the persecutor of the church, but all of us. Your sin, my sin, that's what drove Christ to the cross. Not simply the bad guys over there. Paul uses inclusive language. We. We are all enemies of God. And yet God maintains an unimaginable standard. He loves his enemies. He didn't dish out the consequences we deserve. Instead, Jesus looked on me and you and enemies who reject him and choose ourselves over and over again. And he looked on us with love and he stood in our place. And he took on our consequences, not just our enemies' consequences, but our consequences upon himself. And he paid the price. He said, let me drink the cup. Let me take your righteous and just consequences, Lord, for their actions. Let me stand in their place. He loves us and he offers us reconciliation to God even while we were in. Reconciliation is with Paul and Ananias or the Hutus and the Tutsis. It's a two-way street. The enemy has to repent and ask for forgiveness. And God has done everything to offer us forgiveness. But in order to be reconciled with God, we have to reckon recognize our need to be forgiven. We have to ask for it. We have to believe that we actually have been enemies, that we need to be forgiven, that there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can bring to the table, that there's no good work that we can do to make up for how we've rebelled against God. We stand as enemies before him and need forgiveness and have to believe that he has taken the step to reconcile with us. And when it becomes a two-way street like that, that's when salvation changes us. And when we see the beauty of how Christ has loved us, it's the only way we can see the beauty of loving our enemies. Outside of Christ, loving our enemies doesn't make sense. The only way we can truly begin to embody a command like love our enemies is to realize that's precisely what Christ did for us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's fully on display on the cross. They are crucified. Jesus was loving his enemies. They are crucified. He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Only through the costly forgiveness of Jesus dying for our sins do we discover the power to forgive our enemies. So hear me. Loving your enemies doesn't start with them asking for forgiveness first. It starts with you recognizing that you've been an enemy of God. It starts with recognizing that forgiveness can happen before forgiveness is desired or requested. Because Christ died for us before we ever asked for him to forgive us. The table of undeserving friends is really a table of undeserving enemies made friends. By God's extravagant sacrifice and welcoming grace. That's the only reason we can welcome enemies. And that's why some of our enemies might pull up a chair at God's table. But we won't call them enemies. We'll say my sister. My sister. 